Thank you very much for coming here uh, today to uh, talk a little bit more on um, Mr. Loney's uh, newest release of Stalin's Englishman, The Lives of Guy Burgess. And uh, I just want to let you guys know that this book will also be available for purchase for uh, $24, discounted rate of $24 outside when this event concludes. And I asked um, Mr. Loney, after the event concludes, he very graciously offered to sign books too. So those will be available for purchase at the discounted rate as well as uh, signatures. Uh, if you wish to uh, tweet at this event, please include the Twitter handle, the IWP, with your tweet. Now on to a biography of our speaker, and then I will conclude and open up the floor to Mr. Loney. Um, Mr. Andrew Loney uh, was born in Kenya. Uh, he is a former journalist for the London Times and a British representative for the Washington-based National Intelligence Center. He helped set up the Spy Museum in Washington, which has been doing a lot of advertising recently on the subways, you may have noticed. Um, and he is now a successful literary agent and the president of the Biographers Club. His books, not including this most recent one that he will talk to you about, include an acclaimed life of the writer and former Governor General of Canada, John uh, Buchan, and of course, his newest release, uh, this current one. So without further ado, I want to thank you, sir, for coming today, and I want to thank you for attending. Thank you very much, and without further ado, Mr. Logan. Well, thank you. Can you hear me? Yes. Good. Thank you very much for coming out on this uh, lovely sunny afternoon. Uh, and uh, it's very appropriate we should be here because this is, of course, where Guy Burgess served in the embassy uh, in the beginning of the 1950s, and it was from here he began his long journey into exile in the Soviet Union. Uh, I don't know how much you know about the Cambridge Five and indeed about Guy Burgess. He is um, often regarded as the third member of the Cambridge spy ring. Uh, he's the one person actually that hasn't until now had a proper biography. Uh, I think for a series of reasons. He fled in 1951, he died in 1963. There are very few people uh, around in the way there were around for people like Philby who died in the 1980s to talk to. Uh, and he was always seen as the joker in the pack. But in fact, uh, this book, which I began over 30 years ago, so I was able to interview a lot of his contemporaries, over 100 of them, um, I think presents a very different picture of, of, of Guy Burgess. It actually shows that rather than being the, the, the joker, he actually, according to the KGB people I talked to and other intelligence officials, was actually the key member of the group, the most important member of the group. And so what I thought I'd do is give a brief introduction over the next two and a half hours of um, uh, Burgess's life uh, through a series of PowerPoint presentation, and then perhaps we can talk about some of the issues. How dangerous was he? Were there others in the ring? Uh, why wasn't he caught earlier? And things like that. So our story uh, begins. Uh, this isn't a picture of me, I should say. I think it was chosen by the editor, um, just because it looked like me. But um, our story begins here in April uh, 1911. This is the house he was born in on the south coast of Britain. His father was a naval officer and often away at sea. Uh, and I think one of the interesting things we're charting the making of a spy is the absent father. All of them had absent fathers. Philby's father was abroad in Arabia. Blunt and McLean's fathers died when they were quite young. Uh, and uh, this is the father, Malcolm Burgess, not a very successful naval officer. His son liked to claim that uh, he was been hunting U-boats during the First World War in the North Sea. The truth was he was uh, running the maintenance depot on one of the um, on one of the, the, the in the Tyneside, um, and so it's another indication of how his son was already beginning to create fantasies and stories even at a very early age. 
This is his mother, Eve, with whom he was very close, uh, almost an Oedipal relationship if you look at the letters. She came from a very wealthy background. Her father owned a bank, uh, and the bank was sold to one of our big banks called Lloyd's. And she and indeed her sons, because Burgess had a younger brother, two years younger, were brought up on trust funds. Indeed, even when he was in Moscow, he had trust funds sent out to him. Uh, and this is the home where he grew up as a boy. It's uh, just on the Portsmouth Road, again on the south coast of Britain. It's a large Georgian house with extensive grounds and stables. Uh, and so you can see he grew up in a great deal of, of wealth. And he was educated here with, by uh, governesses before um, he was sent off to, um, to boarding school at the age of 10. This is his father, Malcolm, as a commander in the Navy, just before he retired in the early 1920s. He realized he wasn't going to achieve flag rank, uh, and he therefore took early retirement. He also was not a very well man. And this is the first school that Burgess went to. It's called Locker's Park. It was then probably the most fashionable and uh, expensive uh, proprietary school. This is a school that takes boys up to the age of 13 in Britain. Uh, Lord Mountbatten, the subject of my next book, had just been uh, a pupil there and had a very strong naval tradition. So Lord Beatty's son, the hero of Jutland, uh, was a contemporary of Burgess. The Mitford sisters' brother, Tom Mitford, was a contemporary. Uh, and what I like about Locker's Park is they divided all the houses into colours. Can you guess which colour house he was in? Red. red. Even at the age of 10, he was a red. Um, uh, and here he is, this very angelic boy. Uh, very keen sportsman, uh, very good at football. He actually was told while he, when he left school that he should give up exercise because it was bad for your health, uh, which is what he did. But until then, he was a very able all-rounder, really. Extremely bright, so clever that he was in the top of, the, of, the, of his school, really, for the last three years he was there. And he was destined to follow in his father's footsteps to the Naval College at Dartmouth, uh, but he had to be 13 and a half to go there, and uh, it was decided that he would go off and spend a few terms uh, at this school uh, before he reached 13 and a half. Uh, and this is Eton, probably the best known school in Britain, uh, and he started here at the beginning of 1924. Uh, in September 1924, just before he went back for his third term, he tells the story of being woken by his parents, uh, or, or anguished cries from his parents' bedroom, rushing next door to find that his father had died in the course of making love to his mother. And the young 13-year-old had to separate the two bodies. And this, he would claim, would be one of the crucial elements in shaping both his sexuality and his very, very close relationship with his mother. Now, in most uh, families, you would think that the, they would probably leave him in the same school, but this, of course, is a different time and a different sort of family. And a few weeks later, he starts at the Naval College. A very, very different environment to, um, he's now 13 and a half, different environment to Eton. He's subject to naval discipline. He, as you can see, wears a naval uniform. Instead of learning Latin and Greek, he's learning about seamanship and knots. But he's a chameleon. He's able to adapt to his surroundings. And very soon, people are saying that of all the people in uh, this term, and this is the term here, he is the one most likely to become an admiral. Well, I'm afraid that doesn't happen. He suddenly and rather mysteriously <coughs> leaves the school in the summer of 1927. There are rumors that he's been caught in a homosexual scandal or that he's been caught stealing. The truth, I'm afraid, is rather more prosaic. His eyesight wasn't good enough to be a naval um, uh, officer. Uh, and the fact that he's taken back by Eton, I think, suggests that there's no scandal there. And so he returns to Eton in the autumn of 1927. Uh, and uh, here you can see him in his house photo.
And he again shows himself to be a remarkable all-rounder. It might surprise you that he's um, a corporal in the equivalent of our, I don't know, um, voluntary military service, what we call the OTC. Uh, he's a very conventional schoolboy. Uh, he, again, is very academic, wins a lot of prizes, particularly good at art and history. Uh, and, the, uh, and, of course, is playing football again. And the only real change is that his mother gets remarried. And he learns about the remarriage, not from her, but from his housemaster at school, which again says you something about the slightly dysfunctional nature of this, this family. And the man that she marries is a man called Jack Bassett. Uh, he's a former colonel in, in the British Army always known by his new stepson as the colonel. And he had a very interesting past <coughs> because he'd been the right-hand man to Lawrence Arabia uh, in the Arab Bureau. Uh, he'd been an intelligence officer and indeed had one of the first copies of Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Uh, and he and his stepson really didn't get on at all well. Uh, the two things that really irritated Jack Bassett most was passing the port the wrong way uh, and uh, uh, toast to Uncle Sam, uh, no, Uncle Sam, Uncle Joe. So that's exactly what his stepson did the whole time. Uh, anyway, Burgess continues at Eton. He's now a history specialist. As you say, he's getting all the prizes, but the prize that he really wants is to be a member of a group of self-elected prefects called POP. POP tends to be for the children of royalty, aristocrats, the captain of cricket. It's not really for people who are good at history and um, the son of naval officers. So there's no way he's ever going to be uh, elected. Uh, and But he tries eight times in three terms. And for those of you who've seen the play Another Country by Julian Mitchell, which is about a character called Guy Bennett, which is based on Burgess, this is another part of this journey of alienation, of moving away from the establishment. Uh, he had a line that if you can't belong, you betray. And I think this is one of the beginning stages of, 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 of that attitude. Despite that, he's, he's a prefect in his house. Here you can see him. He's the third one along. Uh, and this is a picture of him on their, on their speech day, on their um, commencement, where um, he, he's, he's one of the leading figures. And from Eton, he wins uh, a major scholarship to, to Trinity College, Cambridge. And for those of you who don't know um, Cambridge, uh, Trinity is the largest of the Cambridge colleges. It's the richest, and it likes to think it's the grandest. They always claim that God had been at Trinity. Uh, and he leads a pretty conventional life in Trinity. Uh, he does a lot of punting. Uh, this is his boyfriend at the time, uh, who, who was a, a fellow communist, but who later became a, a conservative MP, equivalent of a Republican, uh, as a lot of them did. He did a lot of acting. This is where he met Michael Redgrave. Uh, and he was renowned, really, throughout Cambridge as probably the most brilliant undergraduate of his generation. Very flamboyant, very charismatic, uh, and very popular. And these are some pictures taken by quite a well-known photographer there of his time at Cambridge. I love this picture. It kind of sums him up beautifully as a, as a communist. Someone else is doing all the work. Um, and um, this is him on holiday uh, in Scotland uh, with his tutors. Uh, and this is the end of his, his second year. He, he graduates uh, summa cum laude. He gets the first. Uh, and here he is celebrating with his boyfriend at the time, a chap called Ga uh, Jack Hunter. Now, Jack Hunter claimed to be the illegitimate son of Douglas Fairbanks. And I thought, uh, gosh, not another fantasist. He turned out to be the, the illegitimate son of Douglas Fairbanks and later became quite a well-known scriptwriter in Hollywood. Uh, so these are some more pictures from that picnic. 
And this is where the story begins to change. This is probably the best known secret society um, in Britain. It's called the Apostles. It's a group of, of uh, self-electing intellectuals within the universities, within the university, um, who are marked by two things. One is a lot of them are gay. And therefore, they don't feel that they own any allegiance in sense to society, because of course, this time homosexuality was criminalized. Um, and also, they are. Um, I don't know if anyone wants to answer that. So, I mean, they, they, they are distinct because they, they don't feel part of society because they feel that um, they're criminalized by society because it doesn't recognize their sexuality. And also they feel they have a higher allegiance, not to, to the community, but to themselves and truth and purity. Ian uh, e. Forster was a member of, of the Apostles, and you may remember his famous phrase, that he hoped he had the guts to betray his country before his friends. In fact, this story is very much a story about people betraying not just their country, but also their friends. Um, you may recognize in the bottom left-hand corner is Anthony Blunt, uh, who was Burgess's tutor and indeed his lover at Cambridge. And the man directly op uh, diametrically opposite him is a man called Julian Bell, who was part of the Bloomsbury Group uh, and who was killed in the Spanish Civil War. And the Russians targeted the apostles. They felt that it was, this was a very useful group because they felt like outsiders and because they didn't feel the same allegiance to society. Uh, and Cambridge by 1933 had become very politicized. Uh, you may recognize this as Donald McLean, with, uh, he's the, the tall chap underneath the R of war. And um, the communists in Cambridge had taken over. There were about 700 members of the communist society in Cambridge. The leading lights were Kim Philby, Donald McLean, and Guy Burgess. And the reason communism had taken such a hold was the feeling that the old generation had um, really betrayed the younger generation. We'd seen, of course, a national government. We'd seen economic problems. And the feeling that the only bulwark against fascism was, was the Popular Front, and particularly the communists. They were the only people standing up. So this is a famous march in Cambridge in November 1933. Burgess is on the march. Uh, I should say he wasn't walking. He went by car, um, which kind of sums him up. Uh, but this is the point where the whole thing becomes much, much more political. Uh, Philby uh, is a year above Burgess at Trinity, also reading history. He leaves Trinity uh, and goes to work in, in Austria. And there he meets, probably by design, he's probably sent there by one of the communist um, um, teachers at Cambridge, a woman called Litzy Friedman, who is a recruiter for the Russian intelligence services. And he is the first, the Cambridge Five, to be recruited. The Russians have, have, have set up a program to send out long-term moles or sleepers into government service and into the media to be activated many years later. And of course, we're still seeing this, you know, shades of the American and other, other things now. Uh, and Philby is sent back to, uh, to Cambridge with a list of seven names of people he can recruit. Top of the list is, is Donald McLean, and the bottom of the list is, is Guy Burgess. We don't know who numbers two to six were, so whether they were approached and refused, or whether they accepted and they've never been discovered. Uh, and I said, what I should stress is that, you know, we talk about the Cambridge Five, the Magnificent Five, but actually this was a very, very large spy group, um, probably numbering more like 50. And we know many of the people in it now, they've confessed and we've seen the papers. But there are many others that we only know by code name, people like chauffeur and poet and, and professor. And there are others that we don't know except that we know that Burgess and McLean were recruited a few weeks apart, uh, and yet and the, the Russians numbered their recruits, and there's a big gap in the numbers between the two, the two recruits. 
So this is McLean. He's the second uh, of the recruits. They were all brilliant undergraduates. He again had graduated summa cum laude and was going to the Foreign Office. Uh, and Burgess becomes the number third recruit. He also is staying on at Cambridge. He's doing a PhD and teaching there. Uh, and his job is to talent spot. And the first person he talent spots is his uh, lover there. He's also been the lover of Donald McLean. It all gets kind of complicated. Uh, and uh, so his first recruit is his Don uh, Anthony Blunt. Uh, and Anthony Blunt, of course, for those of you who don't know, um, uh, is uh, discovered in 1963 uh, when an American called Michael Strait is, um, confesses that he's been a spy. Uh, and uh, Burgess is um, Blunt is exposed. He's given immunity, and he's only revealed in 1979 uh, when someone else comes forward and talks to a, to a, another writer. And this is the first, uh, fifth member of the ring, a chap called John Cairncross, also at Trinity, and he passed first into the into the Foreign Service. So you can see that they were some pretty bright people. Burgess was also recruiting in Oxford, and this is the uh, one of the members of the Oxford side of the ring. He's a guy called Garomi Rees. He's the man who actually shopped uh, Blunt in 1979. And there are two theories about the Oxford ring. One is that they were so successful they were never caught, and the other is they were so useless that they never actually went anywhere. Um, and I'll say as a Cambridge man, I believe the latter. Um, uh, one or two of them were, were recruited. They never actually got any position of power. They never actually did anything particularly useful. But when I was talking to some of the KGB generals in Moscow when I was researching the book, they hinted that there was a lot more to come out about the Oxford Ring. So, so who knows? Uh, and this is the American dimension to the spy ring, which a lot of people don't know about. A chap called Michael Strait, uh, who uh, was a very wealthy American, very close to the Roosevelt family, and he was recruited by Burgess in 1937 uh, and returned to work in the State Department. And he really worked for the Russians until 1963, and we think possibly even after that. And this is the man that they all knew as Otto. He's the recruiter, a man called Arnold Deutsch, uh, Central European. He spoke a half a dozen languages. And he was in London uh, under deep cover as an illegal uh, doing postgraduate research in psychology. Uh, and he was helped by another Central European, this man called Theodore Marley, who was a, had been a priest and a cavalry officer, uh, and again was a very sophisticated and very cosmopolitan figure. So you can see it was a, it was a pretty sophisticated operation the Russians were running. And this is the third of the most important of the handlers. They had many handlers, and many of whom perished during the purges in the late 30s. But this is a man called Yuri Moden, who's only just died and who I interviewed uh, in Moscow. Anyway, Burgess is recruited in the beginning of 1935. He leaves Cambridge and comes to London. His job is to find out what's going on among the far-right groups, particularly to work out the Russians are interested to know uh, if there's going to be some appeasement between the British and the, the Germans, uh, uh, which, of course, would leave them very exposed. And he goes to work for this man, who's also a lover of his, called Jack McNamara, who's a member of parliament and who runs one of the far-right groups. Uh, he's also reporting for the Rothschild family, just as a financial advisor. So he's doing something for them, but we're not quite sure what that was. Um, another of his lovers at the time is this man called Harold Nicholson, who actually was the father of some people he'd been at school with, and some of you may know as the husband of Vita Sackville West, quite a well-known British writer. And these people were very important mentors to, to Burgess. They protected him, they found him jobs, they made sure that uh, if he got into scrapes, he got out of them. Uh, and Harold Nicholson helps get him a job in the BBC. 
as a talks producer in the autumn of 1936. And this is quite an important post because it allows him to bring his friends in to uh, report, to, sorry, to broadcast and to put out propaganda. And it also allows him to meet all sorts of quite interesting people. And one of the people he meets is a man called David Footman, who is a member of uh, uh, MI6, equivalent of the CIA. Uh, and Footman decides that this, might, this man will be a very useful agent for him partly because of his friendship and with this very charming looking gentleman here called Edward Pfeiffer. And Edward Pfeiffer was the secretary to the French foreign minister and, and prime minister, minister for war, sorry, and prime minister, Edward de Ladier. But he was also a part of a circle of homosexuals in Paris uh, that Burgess knew very well and ran these very clandestine networks. And it was felt that because of his friendship with Pfeiffer, that Burgess would be a useful conduit. And he reports uh, to these two men. Uh, one of them is a man called Neville Chamberlain, who was the Prime Minister at the time. And the other man you won't know is a man called Joseph Ball, who was his like, secret spy chief. And Burgess reported on uh, negotiations in the French cabinet, what they were doing, what the, whether they were going to appease the um, Germans. Uh, so by this stage, 1937, Burgess is working for the Russians, he's working for the British, in equivalent to CIA, and he's also working for the secret um, back channel that the, the, the Prime Minister is also running, quite separate from MI6. And this really begins Burgess's intelligence career. So he's the first of the group to get into, to, into British intelligence. He is seconded to a secret unit called the Joint Broadcasting Committee, uh, which is, um, transmits propaganda into Nazi Germany. He goes off and sets up transmitters in Switzerland and Liechtenstein. Um, he's also working as an ideas man. Um, and one of his ideas is to set up a training college to send agents into, into Europe. And this is the, uh, the college. It's called Brickenbury. And he brings in his old friend from Cambridge, Kim Philby, to work with him there, and they, they, the two instructors. Philby, of course, as a lot of you know, goes on within MI6 to, to almost reach the top. Burgess gets kicked out in the summer of 1940 for, in the words of one of the file, mucking about with a corporal. So that's the end of his career in MI6. But he pops up very quickly in MI5. Uh, by this stage, of course, this is the, after the fall of France. Uh, Blunt has been uh, working in military intelligence. He comes back and applies to join MI5. This is the equivalent like your FBI. Uh, and on one day, he gets two letters, one saying, we don't want you because you're a communist, uh, and the other saying, can you join on Monday? So uh, he joins on Monday. And he runs, he becomes the assistant to the number two in MI5. Uh, and this man, who's another contemporary of theirs from Trinity Cambridge called Kemble Johnson, uh, is brought in to agent-run uh, Burgess, who's given the codename Vauxhall. And he runs two main agents. One is this man called Eric Kessler, who's a Swiss diplomat. He was actually based in Washington at one time, and journalist. And he reports on peace negotiations uh, and uh, the neutrals. Uh, he's also a lover of Burgess, and he's also a Russian spy. Uh, and the other one that uh, Burgess runs is a man called Andre Reve, who's a Hungarian, quite a well-known gallery owner in Britain after the war. But he's a journalist at this time, and he reports on the exile movements in, in London, particularly Hungarians. Uh, another Russian spy and another of Burgess's lovers. So you can see it's, it's a kind of complex picture. 
And Burgess works very closely with this man, who's, the, who's uh, Blunt's boss, uh, who's the number two in MI5, called Guy Little. And Guy Little is one of the victims of this whole story. I think he's completely innocent. I mean, people assume that he was, um, because of his close relationship with Burgess, that he was a spy. He just was, made the mistake of making friends with Burgess. Uh, and he was kicked out when, when Burgess, uh, the story blew up in 1951. But he became very friendly with Burgess. His wife had left him uh, for her half-brother uh, and come to live in the States. And he was a very lonely man. Um, uh, it was, she'd also taken their children with him, with her. And so Bur he and Burgess became very friendly. They used to go to um, the theater every, every Monday night. And he gave Burgess a lot of gossip, a lot of the inside information about operations and agents. And that's where Burgess, in some ways, proved to be most useful to the Russians, reporting this stuff back. Um, the other man he worked very closely with is a man called Dick White, who uh, has a unique distinction of running both MI5 and MI6. And he was the man who'd be brought in in 1951 to investigate the missing diplomats, the flight, uh, Burgess and McLean, when they fled. So you can see it wasn't just a sort of political thing, it was a very personal betrayal, because here were these, I mean, having to investigate former colleagues who'd, who disappeared. And this is a man that there's a big question about Mark over. Uh, he's called Victor Rothschild. He's another contemporary of theirs at Cambridge, another member of the Apostles. Uh, Burgess and Blunt were actually living in his house. Uh, and it's very interesting that when some files were released, about 400 files were released last year on the Burgess and McLean case, uh, I have to say, saying very little. Um, but it was very interesting that the file on Lord Rothschild was retained. Um, so there's clearly something there that the government is, is, is holding back on. Uh, Burgess, of course, had something on Rothschild because he'd been in the car when Rothschild killed someone in a car accident. And I think there's quite a lot of evidence that Burgess was, was blackmailing Rothschild. This is another of Burgess's boyfriends at the time, a man called James Pope Hennessy, who was um, uh, quite a well-known writer in his day. And he was part of a menage a trois with this woman called Clarissa Churchill, who's still alive in her mid-90s. Uh, she's the niece of Winston Churchill and uh, later married a man called Anthony Eden, who was, of course, our foreign secretary during Suez in the 1950s. Uh, when I interviewed her, she claimed that she hardly knew Burgess, which slightly surprised me because I had half a dozen people saying that they were engaged to be married. Um, now, Burgess did have a habit of getting engaged to people without telling them, uh, but this was not one of those occasions, and I'm pleased that when the files came out last year, they did confirm how close they were. Uh, this was another of his very close female friends at the time, a woman called Rosamund Lehman, who was a writer. Um, and they had a, he used to go and see her every weekend until he tried to seduce her gardener. And that was the end of a beautiful friendship, because she said it was a lot harder to get gardeners than to have friends. Um, Henry Burgess continues through the Second World War, working for the BBC uh, and working in intelligence. Uh, and one of the programs he runs in the BBC is, is something called the Week in Westminster, which allowed him to meet a lot of journalists and a lot of politicians. And one of the people he met was the man just standing to the left uh, of the man signing there, called Hector McNeill. Uh, and Hector McNeill, at the end of the war, becomes a member of parliament and becomes the number two in the Foreign Office, number two to the man sitting there, Ernest Bevan. And he decides that he wants as his personal secretary his own man. He doesn't want a foreign office person. And he asks Guy Burgess to do this job. So the Russians can't believe their luck. At the beginning of the post-war reconstruction of Europe, the creation of NATO, the four power conferences, everything, UN, 
uh, Burgess, the, the Russians have a spy right at the center, at the heart of the Foreign Office. Uh, and Hector McNeil is a very lazy man. He prefers to go to nightclubs and to, do, uh, to look at his papers. And so Burgess, who actually is a very conscientious figure, agrees to work late, he agrees to work weekends, he agrees to take documents home, and that's exactly what he does. 5,000 documents in this period are taken um, and passed to the Russians. Chief of Defense Staff minutes, um, cabinet minutes, uh, CX telegrams, everything. Indeed, um, the Russians are, uh, know the, the British position, negotiating position, at the four-power conferences before the, um, sorry, the Russians know before the British know, because Burgess has sneaked out the information the night before. And he serves with uh, Hector McNeil from 1946 to 1948. He seconded briefly to a top-secret organization called the Information Research Department, which is doing black propaganda. He betrays it and its members within a few weeks of, of getting there. He then goes to the Far East Department, where he becomes the resident expert on Chinese communism. And, of course, this is the right, you know, with this period of the Chinese Civil War and Mao Zedong. Uh, and while the Americans, of course, don't recognize Red China, the British position, shaped by Burgess's advice, is to recognize Red China. So this is one of his, again, important roles as an agent of influence. He's by now a career service officer, uh, working, uh, this is just a final bit when he's working for Hector McNeil, this is during the Berlin airlift, and he's sent down to bring back, this is a cartoon he drew, to bring back Hector McNeil to a cabinet minute, uh, a cabinet uh, meeting. He's now, as you say, a foreign service uh, officer, and it's decided that he needs to be sent abroad to, to broaden his, his experience. This is just a little photograph of the house his mother's living in at this time, uh, during the 1940s. It's a house with 17 acres, an ornamental lake, uh, butlers, uh, again giving you a sense of how wealthy he is. Anyway, he comes to Washington in the summer of 1950. The embassy here need a Far East expert. Uh, and he comes and uh, stays uh, with his old friend Kim Philby on Nebraska Avenue. Uh, he lives in this house. Philby and his family are in the main part of the house. Philby puts his secretary and mistress in the attic room at the front there. And he puts his old friend Guy Burgess in the basement. Uh, by this stage, Philby is the head of the MI6 station, the station chief. He's also the liaison officer with the newly formed uh, CIA. Uh, and the reason he wants Burgess there is because Burgess is his courier. He's serviced from New York, uh, and Philby, is quite a senior diplomat, isn't able to travel quite so freely. So that's Burgess's role there. Um, Burgess, by this stage, is, is beginning to crack up. He's drinking very heavily. He's taking cocaine and various other drugs. Um, He's worried that he's going to be caught. Defectors are beginning to emerge, saying there's, there's a spy in the Foreign Office who went to Eton. Uh, and um, he's not a great success in the embassy here. He's moved to the Middle Eastern Department. They don't want him. And eventually he's moved to this very nebulous position of, of reporting on American public opinion, which requires him to sit in bars in downtown Washington and get drunk. Um, uh, one of his other roles is to, or this is, um, this is an interesting woman, this is Esther Whitfield. This is the woman that, uh, that um, Philby uh, had as his mistress and secretary. Uh, she'd, he'd been, she'd been his secretary in Turkey and he brought her across to Washington. And while living in the house in Nebraska Avenue, Burgess fell in love with her and actually proposed marriage to her. Burgess was bisexual. And she's a really interesting character because she was, uh, again, came under suspicion in 1951. She was sat from MI6. She was one of the few senior female um, 
secretaries there, almost really like a like an officer. Uh, she never actually had a, a relationship after 51, and she actually never really had a proper job. She went to live in South, uh, South um, Africa and then in Spain. Um, but Burgess remained very close to her, uh, and uh, she, she, he fled before she could uh, respond to his, um, his uh, invitation to get married. But they stayed very close. And when he was in Moscow, he left a last will and testament. And she was the person he entrusted it to. And she was one of the four beneficiaries of his will, together with Blunt and Philby and his boyfriend in Russia called Tolia. So a really interesting figure. No one really knew anything about her. And this is another figure that no one really knew anything about. This is another spy in the embassy here. Uh, he was atomic energy expert in MI6. He worked a few doors down from, from Burgess. Uh, he'd been named in 1979 in a book um, and uh, had threatened to sue the writer. In fact, he never sued him. The whole story died down. And it was only by looking in some private papers of the head of the Joint Intelligence Committee in Britain that I found that this man actually had been a spy. He's called Wilfred Mann. Uh, he'd been discovered by Jim Angleton and turned and played back against the Russians, which is why I think the whole thing was, was um, um, kept quiet in 1979. And in return, for spying against the Russians, uh, he was given American citizenship and he died in Maryland only a few years ago. Uh, Burgess, one of Burgess's roles was to go and talk to um, groups outside uh, the embassy and he was asked to go and talk to a military academy, the Citadel down in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, and he decided he would drive down there uh, in his favorite car, the Lincoln Convertible. You can see a picture of it here. Uh, and he'd been given a piece of advice when he came to, to America, not to get involved with the color question, not to get involved with communists, not to get involved with um, homosexuals. So what does he do? He picks up a black homosexual communist hitchhiker. Uh, and they get caught three times in the same day speeding in Virginia uh, by different patrolmen. Uh, and as a result, he's reported to the governor uh, and he's uh, basically sent back to Brit or, um, sent back to Britain to face a disciplinary panel. But the timing on this is very good because this is, the April, this is April 1951 and the Venona decrypts, um, which was code traffic during the Second World War, has been broken uh, and they've identified a spy in the embassy in Washington in 1944 and that's Donald McLean. Uh, so Philby is the first person to be told about the decrypt by the CIA, very fortuitously, and he says to Burgess, you must go back and warn Donald McLean. Donald McLean uh, has just had a nervous breakdown. He's just smashed up a secretary's room uh, in Cairo where he's been posted. He's been sent back to Britain to have psychiatric treatment, and after six months he's been made head of the American department, which says something about how things operated. And so he's Burgess's boss, and so he, uh, Burgess goes back, he warns McLean at a meeting that they need to be got out. They know from inside information that, Bert, that McLean is due to be interviewed on uh, Monday, May the 28th, 1951. And so on the preceding Friday, the 25th, Burgess drives down to this house just outside London. He picks up McLean uh, and um, he drives with McLean down to the coast where they catch a boat across to France and that's where they disappear for the next five years. Uh, McLean needs to be escorted out. He is in an even worse state than Burgess. Uh, his wife, who's an American, Melinda, is about to give birth to their um, third child. 
Um, he doesn't really want to go. Uh, the only person that uh, can be trusted to take him is Burgess. The Russians are, are under surveillance uh, within London. Uh, and so Burgess is, is, takes him out. But of course, this puts attention onto Burgess, who of course has never been discovered through the Venona decrypts, and through Burgess puts suspicion onto Philby. So this is either a very bad move by the, the, the Russians, or as they claim when I spoke to them, they, did, they didn't care because they had so many other agents like Philby, they didn't mind losing a few. Uh, this is uh, Burgess's boyfriend uh, at the time, who's been left behind. He's a, a former lover of Anthony Blunt and also of the writer Christopher Isherwood. Uh, uh, this is their, just a picture of their flat. Uh, and this is the uh, notice that is sent out when news breaks of their disappearance. They disappear on Friday the 25th of May. Now, according to the official version, no one knows they've disappeared until the following Monday when McLean doesn't come into the office. But in fact, as I show in my book, the authorities knew on the Friday night. The watch officer at Southampton reported back to MI5 uh, that McLean had gone. Uh, indeed, Dick White, the man that we saw the picture of earlier, who was head of MI5, uh, was deputed to go after them and then found his passport was out of date. He couldn't do it. Uh, but an alert was sent out to, to, um, uh, to British MI6 people uh, in France and possibly to French police. Uh, I also know, talking to a woman uh, who worked for Churchill, that she, was given a, she took a phone message for Churchill on the Saturday afternoon saying that they had fled. So that's two bits of evidence from people um, uh, that the, the authorities knew earlier. So this is where the cover-up begins. Uh, in fact, the, the, the authorities do nothing. Uh, even when they discover it on Monday, there's a slight panic. They uh, don't even tell the Foreign Secretary for a couple of days. Nothing, of course, is said to the State Department or the FBI or, or, or um, the CIA. Uh, and the line is put out um, when the story breaks because of a tip-off from French police on the 7th of June, so several weeks later, that they're still on a drunken homosexual escapade. Anyway, this is the note that was put out. You, you may be able to read it. It says slightly pigeon-toed as, as part of Burgess's description. Um, uh, and anyway, this is the poor border guard who's been sent out to look for them uh, across Europe on the 7th of June, two weeks after they've already reached Moscow. Uh, and this is the water diviner who was brought in to work out where they were. He claimed that they were south of Paris. So there's a sort of comic element to this whole story. Uh, and this is a slightly more serious element. This is the man who actually was running MI5 at that time, called Sir Percy Silito. This is him arriving in the States to brief uh, reporters and to explain to the Americans why their secrets have found their way across to the Russians. We've already had a couple of spy cases, Klaus Fuchs and others, who've been caught in Britain. Uh, and the uh, Americans are very nervous about sharing uh, intelligence information with the, the British. And of course, this makes the situation even worse. And I think of the, the consequences of, of the story, two of the big ones are the, of the, the uh, distrust, subsequent distrust in, in, in the um, institutions of state in Britain, but also uh, it clearly damages Anglo-American cooperation for several years. Uh, the Americans feel that they're being lied to. In fact, the man who escorted Percy Silito, the MI5 officer, was sent because he was a really good liar. So we get this panic because the British um, agencies are not talking to each other. The, the Foreign Office, Security Department, the MI5 and MI6 are not sharing information. They're trying to keep the whole thing under, under wraps. And that's also true of the CIA, the FBI, and the State Department. So it's, a, it's complete chaos. 
Uh, anyway, the whole story goes cold for five years, and then at the beginning of 1956, Khrushchev is due to pay a visit to Britain, uh, and the Russians decide to, to come clean about the missing diplomats. And it, they're brought out in a press conference. It emerges that they've been living in Kubashev, a closed city on the Volga, uh, and they've only just come to Moscow. And gradually, the story begins to come out of what's happened to them. Uh, Burgess is working for uh, ostensibly for a, f a publishing firm, bringing in writer, British writers to introduce him to the Russians. His main job is actually working for the Russian Foreign Ministry, advising them on policy and personalities to do with, with Britain. Uh, and Maclean is doing a similar sort of job. Anyway, this man uh, called Tom Dryberg comes out to visit Br uh, Burgess in Moscow. Who He's a, an MP and a journalist, and he begins to um, uh, basically put together a book about Burgess. So this is the first uh, the only previous book on Burgess, uh, but it's highly inaccurate. It's very much Burgess's version of events. And Burgess is very careful not to incriminate himself. Uh, he knows that the government have no evidence that would uh, stand up in court, uh, and, and he's hoping to come back to Britain. So he's very careful what he says. Um, this is his dacha just outside uh, Moscow, and his dog, Joe, named after Stalin. And this is the block of flats he lives in called the, Novid, uh, the opposite the Novodichi Monastery. Um, and here he is on the balcony there. You can see a pretty arrogant looking man. Uh, a lot of people come out and see him. I mean, he has his books and his uh, pictures and, and everything, furniture sent out to him. Uh, his old mum comes out to see him. A lot of his friends, people like Graham Greene and Stephen Spender. Uh, he spends a lot of time on the Black Sea um, uh, uh, at the Black Sea Resorts. This is another visit uh, with a woman called Mary Fedden, who's got a well-known British artist. Uh, uh, here he is sunbathing. Um, but he's pretty much drinking himself to death. He's bored, he's lonely. Uh, he never expresses any regrets about coming to Russia, except that he prefers British communists to Russian communists. Uh, but he Basically, he's got diabetes, he's got heart problems, which is what, of course, killed his father. Uh, and in August 1963, he dies at the age of 52. Uh, this is his younger brother, Nigel, who, who, in the middle here with the glasses, who comes out to the funeral. And he told me a story of, uh, that when he went to buy his ticket from the travel agent, uh, the, the, the course, Burgess's death had made headline news around the world. Nigel was asked by the woman, will that be a single, sir, or a return? Uh, anyway, uh, Nigel comes to the funeral. Uh, and here he is. Uh, the woman next to him is Melinda McLean, the wife of Donna McLean, who's come and joined her husband in 1955. She returns to the States in 1977 and actually only died in 2013. She will leave her husband, Donald McLean, uh, shortly after this to move in with, with Kim Philby, who's also come to the Soviet Union by this stage. Next to her is a woman called Natalia, who is Burgess's housekeeper, who seems to be about the only one who's upset by his death, uh, and uh, Donald McLean there. He and Donald McLean had very little to do in Moscow. Uh, I mean, they're always joined together. But in fact, apart from being lovers at Cambridge and being joined together with the escape, they, they didn't actually get on at all well. When Burgess died, he left his, his, um, uh, most of his things to Philby. He left his books to him, and the books now are in Georgetown University. Uh, his clothes, because Philby was the same size, and uh, some of his furniture. And this is his wing-back armchair that's still in the flat of, of Rafina uh, Philby. Uh, 
his brother brings back his brother, his uh, guy's ashes, and they're buried in the family grave uh, here in, in uh, Westmere in, in, in um, the south of England. So he eventually did get his wish. He did come home, but just he didn't come home uh, alive. Um, as I say, he is, I discovered, writing this book, the most important of the Cambridge spies. Uh, the Russians all said that. Uh, and that's not something I intended to, 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 it's something I discovered inadvertently in the course of researching the book. So what had interested me was his hinterland, the fact he knew so many well-known writers like uh, George Orwell, uh, actors like Laurence Olivier, um, um, ballet dancers like Frederick Ashton. That's what interested me. But they said that he was the moral leader of the group. He's the one who kept the whole group together. He was the chief talent spotter. He was the first, of course, to penetrate British intelligence and the only one to serve in both branches. He was crucial during the period before the Second World War in determining the Nazi-Soviet pact. He was an important agent of influence during the, uh, his time in the Forest Department, but also in the BBC and later in Moscow. And of course, he had this crucial role at the beginning of, 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 of the post-war period, working right in the heart of the Foreign Office and betraying, I mean, thousands and thousands of documents. And also because of his close friendship with key players, he knew who all the people, who all the agents were. He knew about the operations and all those things of course were were betrayed so that when the Americans did a damage limitation after the war, uh, they decided that um, basically everything that he'd seen in that period from 36 to 51 had been compromised and that they had to start all over again. I mean, one of the ironies of the situation is the material that he produced was so good that Stalin couldn't believe it was true. He thought it, he must be a triple agent. And so quite a lot of the stuff wasn't even translated. We discovered, we saw it in the 1980s. So that is the story in a rapid 45 minutes of Stalin's Englishman. Very happy to answer any questions you might have and, and to throw the thing out into the out into the floor. Why he did it, I suppose, is, is the final question. And there is an element of politics there. He was a Marxist historian. He did see the future lying between two power blocks, Russia and America. And he decided that in order to balance the, the power blocks, that he needed to feed information to Russia. But I think principally, uh, he got his kick from deceit. It gave him an adrenaline um, rush. Uh, to be playing, in a sense, both sides. Um, and he did feel alienated from, from the authority. He liked getting up on them. Uh, they all had a life of deceit. Philby, of course, was not only betraying agents, he was betraying his wives. He was a very promiscuous heterosexual. And, and Burgess, uh, equally, was a very promiscuous he uh, homosexual. So I think that's, that's what drove me. It was a personal thing. Uh, um, and the sense that he could somehow get back at the establishment by doing this. We thank you for, for listening to me. Yeah. Um, I think you said recently that um, uh, some Englishman, um, I guess it was a pulpit or something in the post about um, some guy was, um, he got caught up in, he was incarcerated in, by Stalin, because Stalin didn't believe he was really true communist, which he really was. And I guess my question is, how, how did um, Burgess uh, survive Stalin's uh, paranoia? Especially if you said Stalin like, was 38, how did, how did he make it? Because Stalin died at 53, right? So, so obviously Stalin was still alive when he um, showed up and was living high on the hog. And being, you know, people back in his case officers were, you said, were taken care of during the purges in the 30s. 
Well, I think there, were, there was, a, you know, they were, were worried that, that they might be killed when they got there. Um, but in fact, you know, the, the, the KGB, I think, did use them. They needed to be debriefed. They were still useful. They kept quiet, so the Russians, so the British and the Americans didn't know what was going on. And there was, a, there was, a, there was a, it was almost a propaganda thing. Uh, and I think they were protected to a certain extent. I talked to a man called Sergei Kondrashev, who, who was um, a KGB general, and he said their needs were met. We, 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 we didn't trust them, but we fed and watered them. Uh, to, the boyfriend that Burgess had, Tolly, was actually a KGB agent who reported on him. He was under curfew. But they were basically kept there um, and used and debriefed. And then, as you say, after um, Stalin died, it was a bit easier. They came to Moscow. Uh, and I think by that stage, they didn't feel that they were a, a, a great, um, th there wasn't much they could get out of them, but they weren't going to let them go back to, 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 to Britain. Um, but. Uh, yeah, they. I mean, they did. I suppose they didn't want the, the people to feel they didn't take care of their agents, um, because clearly they had many more agents still in Britain. And if word had got out that they disappeared, uh, it wouldn't encourage the others to defect or to, to work for them. Yeah. Two questions. Uh, first one: Why did you trust what you heard from the KGB people you interviewed? Uh, would, would they have had any interest in feeding you? Something that might have been slightly true, but also yep. misleading. First question. Second yep. question, probably. Did you ever have any discussions in, in doing your research with the members of the, of the British establishment and press them on why they seemed to cover up and really didn't go after the other, up to the 50 you talked about? Well, I mean, to answer the first question, um, of course, everything I'm told, I, I had to had to be. Um, uh, corroborated. I mean, the problem about writing intelligence history is, you know, the people that uh, you want to talk to are not allowed to talk to you because the Official Secrets Act, or if they do talk to you, don't always tell you the truth or didn't know the truth. Uh, and you're absolutely right, you know, there was, there, there could have been disinformation from the Russians. I'd, I found several people, and we interviewed Yuri Moden eight times. We interviewed the man who'd been the uh, guard when he was in, out in Kubashev. Uh I interviewed Sergei Kondrashev and others several times. And um, they were pretty consistent uh, between the, what they said. They, uh, um, I mean, Kondrashev was actually uh, earning less than the, the doorman at the hotel where I interviewed him. And they was desperate for, for money. Uh, this, of course, was a period of Glasnost, or a lot of the stuff. I mean, a lot of archives came out this, this period. Ironically, more archives came out uh, on this subject from the Russians and either from the British or the Americans. But of course, I mean, everything you have to treat with with a degree of skepticism. Uh, and I put some stuff down, and I leave people to judge themselves. But uh, Blunt and others had said the same in their debriefing that Burgess was the most important of the spies, uh, and so it wasn't just the Russians who were saying that. And of course, they had no reason to push Burgess above Philby or anyone else. Philby talked himself up when, when he did interviews. Of course, he had the benefit of living the longest, and he liked to big himself up. He was actually known as Agent Tom in Moscow, and until the late 70s, wasn't really being used by them. He began to be used as in training, uh, training of young KGB officers then. But until then, uh, he had a pretty terrible time, and was drinking heavily and tried to commit suicide. Um, I, I have tried to put this question about the cover-up to, to the British. It's difficult because, of course, all the British people who were involved, the officials, uh, are now dead.
a lot of them completely rewrote history. So the people who were his mentors uh, uh, in their autobiography said they couldn't stand him and they sacked him and all sorts of things. I mean, it was complete rewriting of history. Uh, I've been, uh, one of my big campaigns has been to make sure that historical documents are released. And we have a, uh, Public Records Act in Britain and a Freedom of Information Act, which requires documents to be released, and the government isn't adhering to that. In fact, the government department responsible for it is one of the worst offenders. So only 50 documents were released uh, into the archives last Christmas out of potentially thousands. Um, and that's our country in a sec. And that's one of the big problems. And we have a blanket exemption for anything to do with national security. The Data Protection Act protects people um, and takes it has um, precedence over the Freedom of Information Act. They hide behind relations with foreign countries like America to not release things. Uh, and so it's really difficult to challenge it. And I have challenged a lot of these decisions right the way through the courts. But it's, it's really difficult to get the information one wants. Uh, and the cover-up still continues. I mean, those 400 files that came out last year were only a, a small percentage of the files on the case. There's many more still to come out. Yeah. I think uh, first a uh, short question and then a, a long one. The short one is, I understood you to say that it was CIA that gave Philby the uh, information from Bonona, but it wasn't. CIA had nothing to do with the no, no, it was the FBI. FBI, sorry. Yes, it came through the FBI, but and they but it was shared with with some people in the CIA. Well, but that's right, but it, but it was the FBI. But he was also liaising with the head, FBI. As a head mm. of station, he was responsible for liaison with both of those services. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when Philby got that information, the important thing he saw was that he had to would uh, uh, notify McLean and get McLean out. And so he chose Philby, excuse me, he chose Burgess to be his agent for that. But he was very specific that Burgess should not go with him because he recognized then that if Burgess disappeared, he, Philby, because of that close personal relationship, would be compromised. Yep, and in fact, exactly, it was one of his last words to him, we don't go. Beatle Smith demanded that Philby be removed immediately. Yep. Uh, which it was, and that led to, you know, the confrontations back in London where uh, he was given a uh, soft pat on the back and then uh, basically exiled as the, as the economist correspondent in Beirut. They never wanted to confront well, it was part of a turf war between MI6 and MI5. It was part of a turf war between MI5 and MI6. Yeah. Um, so he was no allowed to go. I wanted to confront mm. the fact that this guy who was so high in MI6 was a commie spy. Well, he was sat. I mean, he was sat. I said mm. that, but mm. they didn't do anything about him. No. He was sent. Uh, and he was allowed to escape. I mean, you know, well, he, he was. He was sent to Beirut to be a, a reporter, which is why I've never trusted the economist. I know everyone else does, but I don't. Um, and, uh, and then later he was allowed to escape because of the silly way that they sent one of his buddies to interview him in '62. Uh, yeah, Nick, Nick Elliott. Uh, the question of who's the most valuable, well, you know, could never be decided because one doesn't have, you know, all the the data. I've always thought that McLean's contribution to the Soviets was probably greater than most people recognize, particularly from that time when he was 
head of the American desk. And consequently, he was the one who notified the Russians even before the Americans received the report of the coming report um, called the Maud Report, which uh, the British put together on the German nuclear program in the hopes that the Americans would join with them to develop an American-British bomb. Uh, the report was given to McLean to send to Roosevelt, and of course he sent a copy to Stalin before Roosevelt got it. Uh, it uh, the, um, I've always thought and his role in the Foreign Office while he was in Paris and while he was in Cairo in terms of damage to the British government, British Foreign Service was huge. He was giving uh, to his case officer in Paris, who was also his lover, female case officer, hmm. um, he gave uh, uh, safefuls of documents over the years he was there. Anyway, that's a question of, you know, who's the, the most... Who, who, yeah, sure. Well, I mean, Burgess certainly gave them more documents. I mean, it's, as you say, it's... it's yeah. I was curious as to your uh, statement that Burgess was an agent of influence on the British recognition of Kami uh, China, as I call it. Um, what basis do you have that? Uh, that he was sitting there next to McNeil, I understand. But there were a whole lot of other reasons why Great Britain Absolutely. was interested in Yeah, no, there were other reasons. I talk about that in the book. Including a place called Hong Kong. Yeah, you know, so exactly. I just wonder, well, I think there's a chapter on this in the in the, in the book, um, and you, it's clearly not the only influence in terms of of because as you say, British interests were different to American interests, and and and, and it, it's their interest to recognise them. But he certainly, if you look at the papers, the, the um, going through the foreign, he was the the Far East expert in the Far East department, um, and he actually lectured at the summer school on communism. But if you go through the papers there, they this show how he interpreted policy and how people responded to that and it helped it was just one of the nudges that was going on but you're absolutely right there are other factors there um, it is a mystery about Burgess going uh, I actually have a bit in the book where he goes back to his old childhood home the day before he flees which suggests that to look around suggests he knew he wasn't coming back the, his cover story was always he was going to go halfway and and then go off and see WH Auden in Iskia but the um, uh, and maybe he was tricked by the Russians or he decided at the last minute to go all the way. The evidence for Philby saying don't go, uh, I mean clearly you know, he could see the repercussions because they were always linked. But Philby put that in his autobiography afterwards, so we don't know that whether that's true or not. Um, but yeah, Philby was cross with them, but uh, I, I don't think he was that cross with them because they did meet when they were in Moscow again. And I think um, um, if, he, if he'd really been so cross with them, I think that might not have happened. But it's true that, it, that, that Burgess going off like that drew not only attention to himself, and no one has suspected him, but also to, to Philby. But the McLean thing is interesting. The, the papers that came out last year um, uh, clearly look at McLean very closely. The, the interview with a lot of his colleagues that Boyd actually had access to. And the feeling is, I mean, this is slightly later, but this is on, on the, the nuclear um, material that he had access to, is that he really saw nothing technical. He only saw political material, which quite a lot of other people in the embassy also saw. I'm sorry? He saw political material, but not technical material. In fact, the more important figure probably was Wilfred Mann in yeah. terms of seeing technical. Well, the atomic, the atomic uh, program 
message that Hawk was a major loss because it started the Russians on trying to penetrate the American program even before there was an American program. Yeah, no, no, I don't dispute that he was, he was pretty crucial. Um, and you seem to speak with a lot of inside knowledge on this, so. Yeah. So I'd love to talk to you afterwards about it. Other questions? Yeah. Um, it seemed like during the 30s and through the 40s, he, who, who was his um, mentor, I guess? Um, when I was in the government, we used to call him rabbi, but that's probably not good to correct to say anymore. So who, who was his... Um, when he, like, like say, he moved from MI5, MI6 to the farm officer, who, who, who up the chain was taking care of him? Well, I mean, when he moved uh, into MI5, that was because of his friendship with, with Blunt, who was in there. When he moved into the Foreign Office, uh, he got a job in the News Department, um, which, uh, because he'd been working very closely with the News Department at the Foreign Office at the BBC. And once he was into the Foreign Office, that was when he had all these links with, with people like Hector McNeil. And Hector McNeil proved to be probably the most important uh, mentor right through to 1948, um, but even in, in 1950, when he was sent to, to, to the summer of 50, when he was sent here, um, MI5 didn't want him to come. The staff here in the embassy didn't want him. They knew all about him. He'd already been disciplined for being indiscreet, but Hector McNeil, who was a government minister, insisted that he come. So, um, and that's all. You know, we can now see all that in the documents. So it wasn't, wasn't family ties or anything like that. But uh, he, uh, one of the reasons that, that, that he and Philby got into intelligence was because both their fathers had been in intelligence uh, uh, because of Jack Bassett's links. The, the, the British thought that they were okay. They came from the right background and they thought they were secure. Yeah. Do you think MI5 is uh, more committed to counterintelligence now than it was then? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they learnt all their lessons. I mean, there were a lot of reports done after that, there was positive vetting introduced. Um, you know, it hadn't happened up till then. Um, but after this, after the you know the missing diplomats, they were much more careful. There was more coordination, for example, between the security department of the foreign office and the personnel department when things got reported, because it, the personnel department knew that both Burgess and McLean were drinking heavily and had been saying, "I'm the British Alger Hiss and things like this. But this wasn't, of course, past the security. Now, of course, the, it's much more joint up. Um, MI5 were, were effective in who they were watching. Well, they, they created huge number of files, but the problem is the files were on the wrong people. They were on the overt um, communists and not on the covert ones. And it's a problem we have now. You know, the people that are you know, often under deep cover, it's very difficult to find them. Uh, if they've never come across the, you know, the, across the, um, the ambit of the, of the security services. Uh, yep, it's a joint biography of, of um, Mountbatten and his wife, which has never been done before. Uh, it reassesses them in the light of, I mean, looking at things like the partition of India, uh, um, the Dieppe raid, uh, um, uh, their private lives, which was which were pretty scandalous. Um, rich. We're rich. I've just seen the FBI file, um, which is quite rich. Um, 
Uh, and also the, the way that the story has, I mean, how he was made a poster boy for the Second World War because he was good looking and connected with the royal family, how he was over promoted, I mean, it's quite critical, but also how um, the family have shaped the story, the legend. So there have been uh, two authorised biographies uh, and two semi-authorised, quite uh, authorised but not, no one realised they were authorised, to put forward their view. And so this is the first, I hope, truly independent book and it's showing how they control the access to the archives, you have to pay them if you want to look at the archives you have to agree to have the book vetted by them um, and uh, there's a lot of stuff that's clearly been covered up, not least as I say the rather racy private life, but there are a lot of things where he just didn't um, uh, His both their sympathies were quite left wing and of course he had a senior position as chief of defence staff, so I, I hope it'll be quite, um, quite revisionist When is it and not for another two years. It takes time. I'm, I'm getting a bit quicker. This one took 30 years. I'm hoping to do the next one in two. What kind of cooperation do you get on that one? Uh, very little. Um, very little. I mean, I've discovered some of the girlfriends, but uh, people write to me and say, um, this, the, some of them are alive. One lives, lives in Bahamas. But the sons will write and say, I, I, I can't talk to you. It links into the royal family. Um, uh, so it's, quite, it's a tougher job. Slightly different. But we have a rule that any anything to do with the royal family is, is, uh, doesn't come under freedom of information. You can't, cannot get any archives. So I'm trying to find it from private archives and from letters. In fact, the, sons, uh, the son of one of the mistresses lives here in Washington. No, uh, they, they, I mean, certainly Burgess didn't express any regret. I mean, he didn't like being in Moscow, uh, uh, and he didn't, but he never said that he had made a mistake. I think he, 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 he was an idealist. I mean, he did feel he'd made the right decision, uh, and that history would judge him. Uh, you know, that, that he could see the faults in the system, Soviet system, but he, he still felt that he'd, he'd, he'd saved the world, saved the world from war.